We're going to begin chapter 16 in our ongoing study of the Gospel of John. Um, because of the words of Jesus in the first verse of 16, I want to remind you what is in 15. Chapter 15 is uh, begins with that figure of Jesus being the vine, we being the branches, and it's its capstone is abide in me, and we talk quite a bit about that. That is a very, very important concept. We developed that, talked quite a bit about that. Jesus then details four results of abiding in him, and then concludes with four uh, characteristics of abiding in him. That's all of the material up through verse 17. And then we closed last week with this. He issues a warning that the world is not going to accept the message, and they're not going to accept you, but then comfort, which is in verse 26 and 27. Uh, the comfort, of course, is the, the coming again of the helper, the parakleton, which is the Holy Spirit. So that you have to remember that context to understand verse 1 of chapter 16. I have said all these things, and that these things refers to what I just summarized, but all of verse all of chapter 15 about abiding in him and with the four intended results and four key characteristics. And then Jesus, it's an infinitive of purpose. Then Jesus explains the, the purpose for that teaching to keep you from falling away. Now, um, I'm not totally pleased with that translation. I read from the ESV translation uh, because falling away sounds like lose your salvation. That's not the sense of that verb. So it might be better to flesh it out just a little bit. I've said all these things, i.e. abiding in me, what I just summarized, with this purpose to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from stumbling in your walk with me. So it's, it's not a warning you're going to lose your salvation. It's a warning that you will stumble and fall if you do not abide in me. If you are not linked to me and dependent upon me, you will fall and you will stumble in your, in your faith journey. I mean, that's really the language that Jesus is using here. They will, and now he uses some examples of what's going to happen. They will put you out of the synagogues. Now, in the first century, that's exactly what happened. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And when you study, the, we, I think we did that a couple of years ago, when you study the book of Acts, you see in those early chapters particularly, it is the, the, the spiritual leadership of Israel that's, that's persecuting the early leaders of the church. And so one even thinks of, of Paul. Paul is, was the chief the chief leader of persecution. And even in Acts chapter 20, I think it's Acts 23, verse 1, he tells us that he persecuted the church with a good conscience. So from Paul's perspective, he believed he was serving God. And it's not until he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road that that, of course, changes. And so that would occur in the first century. That occurs in the 21st century. I mean, one thinks of Christians like in a Muslim country, like Iran or or uh, Saudi Arabia. And you, what you see there is the persecuting of Christians in the name of God. Uh, you, if you were to go, for example, to Hindu, uh, certain strong Hindu provinces in India, a strong surge of, of Hindu nationalism is going on right now in India. 
and they're persecuting Christians in the name of God. They're offering service to the God. So that application is not just in the first century, it's here in the 21st century. And they will do these things, Jesus continues in verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. So the one side, they're doing it for their own religious reasons, but number two, they're doing it because they don't know me. So, I mean, this flip side of that same coin. And that's why using, again, the Apostle Paul's example, the Apostle Paul, he believed he was doing the service to God. He believed he was doing it with a good conscience. It's not until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road that he came to terms with what he was really doing. Then verse 4, but I have said these things to you that, again, it's a purpose, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, when these things happen, I've warned you, and you'll remember that. So, I mean, that's not difficult, uh, what Jesus has just uh, said there. But in a very real sense, and that we know that from history, we know that from Book of Acts, we know it from church history, the first 300 years. Persecution and martyrdom was a part of the growth of the church. I mean, that was, that was a given. So I would imagine that a passage like this was read over and over and over again in the first 300 years, and people would say, this is what's happening to us. This is indeed what is going on in our lives. And to be encouraged, not, not with martyrdom, to be encouraged that Jesus knows this, he warned this. And remember, we're going to see this in the next paragraph, that Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom. As he is working now through his body, the church, the plundering of Satan kingdom is occurring. When people come to know Christ, they are transferred from the kingdom of God. This is the words of Apostle Paul in Colossians 1. They're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus. And that transfer of citizenship, if you want to use it that way, is, is hurtful to Satan, and he is going to do everything he can to prevent that from occurring. And so his response is the antagonism to the, is his, I mean, Satan's response is the antagonism to Christ's body is going to be motivated by, energized by, empowered by Satan to stop the growth of the church. And I mean, this is really important. You've got to remember this big hundred thousand foot view of what is going on 2000 years ago when Jesus said this, and today, it is still going on. Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom. And he is, a, he is ultimately going to destroy that kingdom when he comes back the second time. So anyway, just trying to make sure that these verses are applicable today, not just in the first century. They're applicable today. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. You said that uh, Paul is doing this with a clear conscience, and yet we have the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth. How do we square those off? If, in fact, the, the, the Holy Spirit is on earth, uh, or maybe it wasn't at that time, and I guess maybe that's the answer to that. Just... Well, now remember, uh, when, I, uh, when I mentioned Paul as an example, I believe it's in Acts 23. I'd have to double-check that. But he is giving testimony for the Roman governor there in Caesarea. And he's, he's accounting for what he did and what change of the Damascus Road brought in his life when he met Christ. But he's saying, what I was doing was with a good conscience. Now, by the time Paul is doing this, 
Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection occurred, and Pentecost has occurred. So the Holy Spirit is active now in the church. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or clarifying, but I mean, that Paul is speaking in what I was quoting there, be, he's reviewing his life, but before he met Christ. And the word he uses, I was, I was persecuting the church with a good, um, uh, agathos is the word there, but a good conscience. I believed I was doing the right thing for God. And of course, he had to come to terms with what verse 3, uh, Jesus said, he had to come to know me to realize that he was not doing that in service to God. And so, um, and again, I'm not sure how else to respond. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but... Yeah, I just, we're, we're just saying, uh, were you saying that at, at the time that Paul is doing this persecution, um, well... Wasn't the Holy Spirit present on the earth at that time? Sure, sure. But Paul didn't know Christ, so he's not motivated by the Spirit, not energized by the Spirit. So I guess then, then the question I have on that is, in fact, the people who haven't known Jesus Christ have made that decision that exists around the world, they they aren't necessarily convicted by the Holy Spirit, are they? How, do, how does that work? No, well, no. Not yeah. again. Not until you come to know Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit active in your life. Now we're gonna we're gonna see here in the next um, set of paragraphs about the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to the world. And I, I want to separate these two things. That's not what we're talking about right here. But but again, I mean, if a person doesn't know Jesus, uh, and this is true of of Muslims, it's true of Hindus. I mean, we're doing some work right now with India, and when you understand the Hindu mindset, and they're intensely, intensely vitriolic toward Christianity, but they believe that what they're doing is in the name of their gods and their religious, their religious conviction. They believe they're doing the right thing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Some of the most fanatical uh, examples of persecution and martyrdom in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ has been from other religious people who believe what they're doing. L listen, what motivates people the most is they believe they're doing something that really matters. And what helps people to think that things really matter is when they believe they're doing it for religious reasons. And that can be a Hindu, that can be a Buddhist, that can be a, that can be a Muslim, and that can be a Christian. <laughs> But I mean, it's unless you know Christ, the motivation uh, that explains why you're doing what you're doing is not honoring to Christ. And that's the whole point. And, and again, that's why I used that illustration of Paul. Before he came to know Jesus on the Damascus Road, he believed he was doing God's work. <clears throat> and he had Thank to come you. to know Jesus to see that it was not doing God's work. Thanks, Jim. Now, the next verse then... Um, he begins, he, Paul, uh, Jesus begins an important block of teaching on the Holy Spirit. Now, he's done that throughout this text, so this isn't the first time, but he's going to add an important point here. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you has asked me where are you going. Now, what he means by that and the intensity of that question, where are you going, Jesus is saying, none of you has really asked me a thoughtful question about me 
about my destiny, about what's going to happen, because you are so self-absorbed. And that's true. They are. I mean, these apostles, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize them. I'd have been exactly the same way. But, I mean, they are trying to process everything Jesus is saying. And he's been dumping an enormous amount on them. And so you're not asking thoughtful questions. You're not asking real, well-thought-through questions. You're self self-absorbed. That's right. They're thinking, I'm so, oh, my, he's going away. We're going to be left alone. And, I mean, that's why they all desert Jesus. You're going to see that later in the chapters as we get near the end. They all desert Jesus, including Peter. Things have to change. So Jesus is saying, but because I've said this thing, sorrows has filled your heart. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 14. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And he's been saying this to him over and over again. It is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, he has said this to them over and over and over again. And he's saying it to again. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. And again, the helper, it's paracleton, it's the Holy Spirit. One exactly like Jesus, except he's going to indwell them. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, now here's what I want to slow down and talk a lot about this. So what Jesus is, is saying, I have told you over and over again, I'm going back to the Father. It's to your advantage I do so because I'll send the Holy Spirit. Now he wants to zero in on another reason why it is so important that they see it is advantageous to them that the Holy Spirit comes. So he zeroes in now. The world isn't going to accept you. They're going to push back. Uh, it's all the things he's been saying. We talked about the end of last week and just a few minutes ago. Now he gives them a new insight. Well, what is the work of the Holy Spirit to the world? That so opposes Christ, so opposes the disciples, and so opposes the church. When he comes, he will convict the world. Now remember, world there, the way John uses it, the way Jesus uses it, is that system that stands opposed to God, that is in rebellion against God, over which Satan rules. So he will convict the world concerning three things sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what is Jesus saying? That the Holy Spirit's work to the world is going to be a convicting work. So we have to think about that. That means that the Holy Spirit not only indwells believers, and he's going to say more about the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, guiding them, teaching them, and so on, but the Holy Spirit is also active in the world. And in the world, he's active in bringing conviction. In other words, helping a person to understand that they have a need for a Savior. Now that, and here we get into this very difficult tension between, as we've talked about this many times in, over the years, between the divine sovereignty of God and the human responsibility, the responsible freedom of the individual. What is going on here is the divine sovereignty part. What is the Holy Spirit sovereignly doing in the world? 
He's bringing conviction to the world in three categories of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now, he will do this multiple ways, multifaceted ways, but that's one of the things he does. So let's step back and talk about each one. First of all, he will be convicting the the world of its sin because they do not believe in me. So, in, in, and this is really important. We see this developed throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. One of the works of the Holy Spirit in the world is to help people who do not know Christ to deal with their unbelief. In other words, it will be the Holy Spirit, and these are some of the verbs that are used. It will be the Holy Spirit who woos people. It will be the Holy Spirit that draws people. It will be the Holy Spirit that will bring in the heart of an unbeliever a conviction of sin and their need for a Savior. That's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why you and I, who are believers, we are an instrument that God will use to accomplish that purpose through the Holy Spirit. So we are the, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing this, but this is really important. So it's the Holy Spirit who will deal with this issue of unbelief by convicting people of their sin. And I mean, that, how does he do that? Well, there are just innumerable number of ways he'll do that. But for the most part, all of you totally understand that God puts within every human being an innate sense of right and wrong. There is a human conscience. The Bible speaks of that 31 times in the New Testament. That those things the Holy Spirit will use. And a person who does not know Christ can suppress that, harden their hearts against that, refuse to acknowledge that. There are hosts of examples of that in Scripture. But it's the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, that's important for these disciples to hear that. That's important for you and me to hear that. It's important for the world to hear that. So you and I, our role is to be available to share the truth about Jesus Christ. But any convicting work, any internal work of guilt and the feeling of the need for a Savior, this is the Holy Spirit's work. You and I are called to be faithful. Our job is not to change people. That's God's business. Our job is to be faithful in doing what God... And so for the disciples, that's going to be important for them to hear that. That one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do is he's going to convict these people that are persecuting you These people that I warned you about at the end of chapter 15 of their sin, because they don't believe in me. Secondly, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now that's, at first you don't, well, how's that connect? Well, remember, because Jesus is going back to the Father, his role as the final revelation of God ends. He's going back to the Father. So now who, who will be preaching the message that righteousness can be found in Christ to deal with your sin problem? Well, it will be the Holy Spirit who will be convicting people of their need for righteousness, their need for a Savior, because Jesus is no longer on earth. Now the Holy Spirit will do it. So don't, I mean, don't, don't miss after the word righteousness, don't miss the, be, the causal clause, because I'm going back to the Father. Because Jesus is going back to the Father, the Holy Spirit will take that up now. And it will be the Holy Spirit who will do the convicting work 
of the of salvation. The message that solves the problem of sin is the message of righteousness through Christ. But Christ has gone back to the Father, so now it's the Holy Spirit who will do, who will do this. And then finally, concerning judgment. And notice again, there's a causal clause, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the third thing that the Spirit will be doing in, in conviction is convicting the world of its judgment. Because the head of the kingdom of darkness has been judged. Now, please let me do something grammatical here. I don't want to lose you in the weeds, but this is powerful when you understand that. I read from the ESV translation. So they translate that because the ruler of this world is judged. I'm assuming most of your translations have it that way. This, just follow me. This is in the perfect tense in Greek. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but what, what it means does mean something. It's quite powerful. To be in the perfect tense means it's an event that has ongoing, continuing results. It's not a one-time event. It's an event that occurred in history, space-time history, but it has ongoing results. So what you could really do if you want to flesh all this out the ruler of this world, that's Satan, Jesus called him that before, the ruler of this world has been judged at the cross and continues in this perpetual state of judgment until I deal with him finally, Revelation chapter 20 tells us that, when I throw him into the lake of fire. So in other words, Satan, and this is, this is why Satan hates the cross, because of the cross is the symbol that he's lost and the subsequent resurrection. So what Jesus is saying is the Holy Spirit is not only convict the world of its sin because they're unbelief, not only of righteousness, because he now is the energizing power of that conviction, because Jesus is going back to the Father, but also judgment. That Satan, the ruler of this world, has been judged at the cross, and the consequences of that judgment continue through history. In other words, and this is how I like to put it, Jesus is now plundering the Satan, Satan's kingdom because Satan has lost. And so this, this three-part message, if you want to call it that way, this three-part message that the Holy Spirit will be convicting, it's ongoing, it continues, on and on. Now, here's the other point. Let's go to the other side of the railroad track. What's the instrument, the human instrument that the Holy Spirit will use? Well, he's going to use his word. He's going to use people. He's going to use prayer, the prayers of God's people. And he's going to use people who are available for those divine appointments from God to be the instrument that the Holy Spirit will use to bring people who don't know Christ to a point of salvation in Christ. So again, what, what Jesus is zeroing in here as he's talking about the threefold work of the Holy Spirit of conviction is the, right, the left-hand side of the railroad track, the divine sovereign role in bringing all this. But it's not leaving out the responsible freedom of the person hearing it to respond, but also the instruments God's going to use through the Holy Spirit to bring about these things. So, I mean, this, is, this, takes, this takes thought. You have to think about this this amazing work of the Holy Spirit in the world 
that which system which stands opposed to God and rebellion against God over which Satan rules. This is how Jesus is bringing about the defeat of Satan. And it's an ongoing defeat until he finally deals with him according to Revelation 20 and throws him into the lake of fire. All right, I dumped a lot there on you. Rush, you got a question. Yeah, um, you said that on the grammatical point, you said you were using the perfect tense. Don't you mean the, the continual or progressive tense? Is no. it ongoing? So perfect it's, means it's complete, in, right? In, Completed in Greek, at a point in time to the in tense. The Greek, okay, I'm sorry. In, in the Greek, in, in okay. Koine Greek, Yep. You have present, you have past, you have aorist, you have a lot of different tenses. But there's a unique tense called the perfect tense. It's That's what it's called. It's called the perfect tense. Uh-huh. And you can tell it's perfect tense by its by its suffix when you read it in Greek. But what's the, the suffix? Is, and it's unique, the suffix. It's, you know, yeah, the, which one? The perfect tense. No, no, I mean, what is the example of the suffix? I'm, I'm usually, to... usually it ends with an A and an I in English. Okay. And so, and again, it's, it's unique. It's unique to the Greek language. That's why the Greek language is such a rich language. And that's why it's so hard to learn it, because you have all these nuances and, and unique verb tenses and then unique, con- I mean, some of it I've talked a little bit about. But anyway, that's why it, this is such an important time when you see what Jesus is saying, it's an important time to really bring up and flesh out what that means in the perfect tense. It's not only past, because Jesus is saying he's judged. And the ESV, is I, I like their translation, is judged. He doesn't say has been judged. He doesn't say will be judged, is judged. And the is judged captures not only something that is an event, but it tries to capture it continues. And so you have a past event, which has ongoing continuous results. That's why I said, if you really want to flesh this out, I I can't remember how I said it, but something like that Satan, the ruler of this world, has been judged at the cross and continues in that state of judgment until Jesus throws him into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20. If I can... uh... The cross and the resurrection of Jesus is the defeat of Satan. Yep. And so, so that has ongoing continuous results. And among the many, many things that illustrate that are the people from Satan's kingdom who come to know Christ are now each one of those is a defeat for Satan. That's why the angels rejoice. The Bible tells us every time a, a human comes to know Christ, because another one's been lost. To Satan's kingdom. Another one's been gained for Christ's kingdom. And it's all explained by this magnificent, marvelous work of the Holy Spirit using the message of the gospel, the instruments of human beings, to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. If you could endure, you know, one more uh, oh, sure. question sure. that has to do with my uh, ignorance sure. regarding uh, Greek grammar. Um, the Holy Spirit in my rendering is uh, paraketos, is paracletos, to para, paracletos, and, yeah, instead of paracleton. And is that significant or no? No, it's just that that's just marking off. No, no, I'm going to confuse you. It's marking off whether it's in the nominative or accusative case. 
Okay, so, and that leads to my next thing, which was in order to beef up my understanding, because a lot of my uh, study of Greek has been limited by my, uh, by this very issue, the, the nominative cases, the tenses that are, that I read is different. A perfect tense has a different meaning to me in English than it does. It does, um, of course, Greek. that's why you really is have there, to. Is there a resource that you could point toward that I, I don't necessarily need to be a scholar, but I just want to get, I want to be able to deal with the, the suffixes and things at a higher level than I'm at right now. I mean, I could do something randomly, but I figured you might be able to intelligently point. Well, I mean, Russ, <laughs> there's no easy way to learn a language like that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean that. I mean, you can. Well, I, I don't want to learn the language, you know, so that I have the construction, but I'd like to be no. able to deal with these kind of points. Um, so that I can, you know, not necessarily write a book, but I can be informed as I dig into the the interlinear and <laughs> right. Um, there are uh, I, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but there are a couple. I mean, I, I had four years of Greek in graduate school, so I can't recommend things that are going to be much help for you because you don't you you don't have the time to do what I did. However, there are some there are some resources, but it's still going to take some time for you. But some resources about summarizing some of the distinctive elements of these unique Greek nuances, like the condition clauses. There are three of those: first, second, third class condition, and especially the importance of the perfect tense. What? Why? And I'll have to. I'll have to just. Yeah, let's not take everybody's time. Out. Yeah. I have yeah. to look at my office because I have a couple of those, but I also have I can. a couple of volumes that are this thick, yeah. which you're not interested in. And then in that as well is the, the, the significance of, for example, the accusative case. What, why is that important? Which is what the paracleton, it's in the accusative case. Why is that important? And I'll, I'll just, I'll email you that. Okay. And you can you can do with it what you want. And, and don't don't be afraid to. I mean, I'm just going to get. I I will hit the internet. I will use these as keywords, and then I'll use linkages. So if you want to reference me something that is over my head, don't worry about it. Just send me whatever the reference material is, and then I can expand from there. And if I get there, lost, do I can you have from do you have access? There is a uh, there's a program. Uh, uh, a, uh, a download called Logos, L-O-G-O-S. Um, I never got Logos. I've got just about that, everything else. That has, and I, I don't remember what it costs. It's about four hundred dollars. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of pricey, but that can be a resource that you can use, and it's right on your computer instead of going to a book on a shelf or something mm -hmm. like that. That if you want to invest in that, invest in that, that can help you. With, with some of that, because it is designed, that program is designed for people in ministry. It's not designed for the scholar sitting in his, in his ivory tower office. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that, but because yeah. the person sitting in the ivory tower office is the person who designed this. <laughs> right, but, it, it's the, it's a but resource. the distinctions don't have to be as granular. Yeah, and no. so, I mean, that could be, I, I mean, you might want to look into that, but that could be yeah. something that would answer as close as you can with as easy access as you can some of these questions thank you okay jim, uh, jim i have another comment i guess as we witness to uh as christians to other people who have yet to come to know the lord 
there's a scripture that he that is in you, meaning the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world, referring to Satan. And so um, you're kind of encouraging us um, to be willing to go forward and share the gospel of Jesus Christ and leave the results, as we say so many times here in this class, up to God. And he is faithful. God is faithful. And we certainly have the power within us to share the gospel and change the life of someone else who would otherwise be lost. Exactly. I mean, is that kind of summary? Well, and that that verse from uh, the end of 1 John is really important. Uh, Jesus is the overcomer. And because we are in Christ, we're overcomers. He's overcome the world. the one that's in us is in the Holy Spirit is greater than he that is in the world, Satan. And I mean, that's, that's an objective fact that is absolutely true. And for that reason, we need not be afraid of Satan. We need not be afraid of the evil one because we have won the victory with Christ. And that's the power of that perfect tense nuance that I tried to stress that, as Jesus says, is judge has been judged at the cross, and the ongoing results of that event continue, and Satan is defeated. He's lost the cosmic battle. Uh, the, only, uh, the only thing you and I need to be concerned about is not the enemy, it's our relationship with Christ. And as Paul will write in Ephesians 6.10 and following, that's why every day, as we get ready for the day, we remind ourselves who we are. We put on the whole armor of God. Now that's figurative language, but we remember that we have the breastplate of righteousness. That's who you are. You're righteous. The helmet of salvation. That's who I am. The belt of truth. That's what I believe. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I have that. I read it each day. The shield of faith. I mean, there's the thing. We just remind ourselves of who we are. And because we are in a struggle, but we've got the resources to every day be victorious and every day meet those divine appointments that Jesus brings across our way. But we are on the winning side. For you and me, Satan has been defeated. He has absolutely no authority over you or me unless we allow him to have authority over us, which God forbid we would do that. So yeah, these are these are tremendous truths that Christ is teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who do not yet know Christ. And that we have to, you know, as well, and you just said it again, Fred, we have to remember our job isn't to change people. That is God's business. Our job is to be faithful, whatever that can be, whatever the content of that might be. All right. It's tremendous stuff here. It really is. A thought paper on this threefold work of the spate of the Holy Spirit here would be really advantageous. But since you don't do them, I won't even waste my breath. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. This is Jesus speaking. But you cannot bear them now. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hasn't come. When I go back to the Father, send the Holy Spirit. And so he now says... But when he comes, and what does he call him here in verse 13? 
when the spirit of truth come. So here we see again, he's, he's just building these building blocks. Here's another building block. I'm going back to the Father. It's your advantage that I do that because the Spirit's going to come. He's going to convict the world. But what else? I can't. There's so much more I need to tell you, but I can't because you can't bear it. You need the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of truth. The Spirit is not the Spirit of lies. Jesus says of Satan, he's the father of lies and has been a liar from the beginning. Not the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit will never lie to you. The Holy Spirit will never deceive you. The Holy Spirit will never manipulate or connive with you. He is the Spirit of truth. And so therefore, notice this, he will guide you into all truth. Now that, that he will guide you into all truth. Now we learn part of what that means in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, that we studied a couple of times, and I've referenced it a couple of times. What is the Holy Spirit's role in our lives in terms of truth and wisdom? See 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. He will guide us. And that term, that phrase, uh, that verb guide, is almost like a shepherd again. Shepherd us because he has our best interests at heart into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And again, I mean, this, this language, he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you. They're, they're the things Jesus has been talking about in terms of his relationship with the Heavenly Father. I don't speak on my own authority. I speak on the authority. Now, Jesus is saying the same thing to the Holy Spirit. Again, just reemphasizing what we saw in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24, that the, that the Father and Son never act independent of one another. They're mutually independent, interdependent to accomplish the Trinitarian God's work. So now the Holy Spirit's brought into this. He does not act on his own authority. He is speaking what he heard. He declares what he's heard. He declares that he is the source now of truth for you. He is the spirit of truth. You can always trust he'll never lie to you. He can always trust he'll never deceive you. And as we learn in the epistles of Paul, that the Holy Spirit uses the word which he has inspired to guide us, teach us, instruct us, and shepherd us to truth. That's why, if you want to know truth, the first place you go is the Bible. Then you go to any other discipline. If you want to study science, you begin with this proposition. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you want to know history, you start with the proposition, God is the sovereign Lord of history, providentially, providentially uh overseeing and superintending events to accomplish his redemptive purposes. If you want to, I mean, you can just go on and on. The pursuit of truth begins with God's revelation. And it is the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, who will shepherd and guide and teach you his truth. And then verse 14, he will glorify me. Now, you ought to underline that. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. 
because the message of the gospel is about Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, now exalted at the right hand of the Father. The work of the Holy Spirit in this interdependent, mutual interdependence of the Trinitarian God is to bring glory to the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus' role, which we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of John, is to bring glory to the Heavenly Father. So he will go from me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Same word we saw in verse 13, declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Third time, you see the verb declare. Now, for you and me, that will occur through the Bible the 66 books of the Bible, which the Holy Spirit inspired, 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16. And that inspirational work of the Holy Spirit is what will be declaring to us the mutual message of the Trinitarian God to bring glory to Jesus, who brings glory to the Father, so that the Godhead will be glorified. But think about this. This also had important meaning for the disciples, many of whom will write the New Testament books. And so it will be the Holy Spirit, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the Spirit inspires the writing of his word. And so you, you have this fantastic summary of the incredible total work of the Holy Spirit in each century. But in this first century, what he declares is also going to be written down by the apostles. And those writings will become the New Testament books. So, I mean, this, this section, these first 15 verses of chapter 16 are awesome verses. Because we have insight again into why it was so important that Jesus go back to the Father and the Holy Spirit come. His convicting work to the world, and now his work of declaring, shepherding, guiding, declaring to God's people truth. Because he is the spirit of truth. And again, I encourage you to go to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. We've studied that a couple of times. But where Paul expresses to us clearly that it is the Holy Spirit who knows the deep things of God, that's a phrase in that passage, and reveals them to us. So that the end result, verse 16, is we have the mind of Christ. We have God's perspective on things. Without the Holy Spirit, who uses his inspired word to teach and declare this to us, we would know nothing but lies. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we have the opportunity to have the mind of Christ, God's perspective on all things, God's truth. So this is absolutely fantastic teaching here from Christ. It is central for you and me 2,000 years later to really wrap our intellectual arms around this and really get this. You and I serve a God who has given us a resource, the Holy Spirit, who guides us, shepherds us in truth, using his word, which he inspired, to teach and guide us today. 
Jim, I have a question for you. Like the Holy Spirit <clears throat> over in uh, uncivilized countries, quote, what we would call uncivilized countries, uh, that Holy Spirit is just as present there, is he not, as he is in the United States of America? Yes, but if there is no church and if there are no believers, it's a different work. Yeah. But I mean, his convicting work goes on. That, that is a given, uh, regardless of where someone lives. But with the church, and that is another important issue that I probably don't want to go down at Bunny Trail right now because it's a long one, but where there's a church and where there's a, and I don't mean a building, I mean the organic body of Christ, where the church is, there's a, there's a, there's a, greater, there's a greater impact on that culture, a greater impact on that society, yeah. because we now are the salt and light and we are the, of, of Jesus, and we're the ones in, in, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we have, because salt has that preservative function. That's how salt would have been understood in the first century. So where the church is, there's a preservation from, from further social and cultural deterioration. And a growth, too, right? Well, and that, I mean, that, and Lord willing, it will grow. But with that, without that, then you see greater greater decline, greater social uh, dysfunction, and all that. And so when you, know, you get into a country where Christ is not honored, you, you see that quite clearly, honestly. But that, that is really the importance. That the, and when the church is gone at the rapture, when the church is gone, wherever you're going to put that event, but when the church is gone, that's one of the reasons why when the church leaves, it is not very long till the world self-destructs under Antichrist and Christ comes back. And that's what you see in Revelation 6 through 18. But I mean, it's just, these are powerful words. And that's why the church has been the organism that ultimately brings back phenomenal cultural change. And, and uh, you can see that in 2000 years of the, church, of the history of the church. Do you, do, you, do you all have this important, especially verses 12 through uh, 15. Do you, have, do you have any question about that? This is really important. I don't mean to exaggerate, but this really is, because this work of the Holy Spirit continues today in your life and in my life. This is one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. It, it's just a fantastic summary, and it's so encouraging. Oh, man. Well, I got to get over being so excited, so let's move. Verse 16. What time is it here? Oh, we still have some time. All right, now, uh, now he's speaking directly to the disciples, the 11. A little while and you will see me no longer. A little while and you see me. All right, now that, that's not hard. It sounds a little unusual. A little while you'll see me no longer because I'm about to be arrested and I'm going to be put on six trials and I'm going to be executed and I'm going to be in the grave for three days. And in a little while, you'll see me. At the end, you're going to see me as a resurrected Lord. And there, there are 10 major appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And almost all of them, too, are to the disciples, a small group or the total group. So that's all he's saying. He's told them that before. So some of his disciples said to one another, and you can see that they're still not getting this, what is this that he says, a little while and you'll not see me, a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. 
So they're putting all this stuff together and they're kind of confused. Verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 18, verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And that is about the crucifixion. You will weep and lament. They will. The world will rejoice. It will. You will be sorrowful. They were. Sorrow and lament will turn into joy. That's what they don't get. So Jesus tells a short parable. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivering the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And so this, again, is a, a tremendous reminder of how the resurrection is going to change things, because their, their sorrow and lament will indeed turn into joy. But then he says, no one will take that joy from you. Because these men who, who had been with Jesus for three years, and they watch him die on a cross, and then three days, days later and subsequent days, because he meets with them over 40 days' time, their joy, that joy will never leave them. Because they now have the resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection changes everything. And it changes their demeanor. The, the incredibly important manifestation of supernatural joy. And so we had read that earlier. Remember the four my statements? My peace, my joy, my friend. Remember all that? So this is my joy. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whenever you ask of the Father in my name, it will be given to you. Now, when he says, you will ask nothing of me, he, what he probably means by that is concerning my death and burial and resurrection, because they're going to understand. I mean, they're not going to say, Jesus, were you really resurrected? They will, see the, they will see the Lord Jesus. They will know. So that's what he means. It's going to be some, so clear to you. You're not going to have any more questions for me. I say to you, whatever you ask the, the Father in my name, it will be given to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, he said this about a half a dozen times. When I am resurrected and go back to the Father, prayer life's going to change. So he says it again. There's now this intimacy and certainty that praying in Jesus' name changes things. Praying in Jesus' name, name means you have a new authority. And one of the results of that relationship, that intimate relationship, where you can talk to God about anything, where you can talk to your friend, remember he says, you're my friend, will result in joy, my joy, which he developed in the previous chapter. So in a way, verse, uh, 19, uh, verse 16, excuse me, through 24, is a summary of what he's been saying over and over again to these guys, but why it is so hard for these guys to keep, they just don't get all this yet, but they will. And as he says before, and he says it again, 
The resurrection is going to change everything. And that resurrection and ascension back to the Father and all that that he's been teaching over and over again is going to really bring this joy to these guys' lives. All right. Now, um, I, I, I'm sure there aren't any questions. That isn't real difficult material. But let's, let's look at one more thing before we take our, our break for the end of the class and, and regather next week. Verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Now, that refers to what he just said earlier about the woman giving uh, birth. That's a parable. That's a figure of speech. And he's done that over and over again. But the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The hour is coming. What's that mean? After his death, burial, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Takes you back to verse 12 through 15. I have spoken to you in parables. I have spoken to you in figures of speech. I have spoken to you to illustrate truth through parables and figures of speech. But the hour is coming after my death, burial, resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit when we'll speak plainly because it's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And so, I mean, again, he's drawing them back to the important linkage of the Spirit. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I will do, and I will do not, and I do not say to you that I'll ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And, and so, I mean, Jesus is just reminding them that this love relationship between the Father and the Son, they will join that circle of love. We read about that in chapters nine, chapter 15, verses 9 through 16. That's all he's saying there. It isn't complicated. And so then he concludes in verse 29, the disciple says, ah, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. And so this is quite wonderful, really. The disciples are beginning to get it. Jesus says, do you now believe? There's kind of some irony there. Now you believe? Indeed, behold, verse 32, Jesus is alluding to Zechariah 13, 7 here. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. Now, he has said that before, but notice the phrase, in me, you ought to circle that. That's abiding in Christ, in me, that circle of security, that circle of safety, in the world. I contrasted in my Bible in me and in the world drew a line between them. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that language of overcoming the world is a language of military conquest. I have conquered the world. And again, that's not, you know, the, the seven continents on planet Earth. It's the world system that stands opposed to and is in rebellion against God over which Satan rules. 
I am conquering the world. I'm plundering this kingdom of Satan. And so you are going to leave me alone. You're going you're gonna to desert me for a time. But the Father will never desert me because what my work will accomplish is the work of overcoming this world system. So it's a tremendous way to end what we usually call the upper room discourse, that final discourse Jesus has with the 12, uh, well, actually the 11 by now, but anyway, with the disciples before he goes to the cross. Now, next week, we're going to deal with chapter 17, <clears throat> which is there are three prayers that Jesus prayed recording in the Bible. They're all in John, in chapter 11, chapter 12, and now chapter 17. I'll review those two previous prayers, but chapter 17 is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I'll explain why it's called that, and we're going to work our way through. It's a majestic prayer. It's an incredible prayer. And so we want to understand it. We want to learn from it. So if you have time before next week's class, if you can read chapter 17, it's fairly long, not real long, but that would be great to just prepare it because this is God the Son praying to God the Father right before the cross. So what's on his heart? But what is most important to him right now, hours before he goes to the cross? That's what, among other things, we want to look at. So it'll be a great session next week. I'm not sure we'll get through the whole chapter, but it's very powerful, and I'm looking forward to it. Jim, uh, yeah. Jim I, I'd like to just announce that uh, next week, our <clears throat> plan, for those of you who are in Omaha, we will meet at um, Grace Central Church, uh, and that is located directly across the street from First National Bank. It's the old Saturn building. And if you men would write this down, it would be helpful for you to find it. It's 344 North 115th Street. That's 344 North 115th Street. And uh, that's, just wanted to bring that to your attention. So that's all I have. Thank you. All right, let me pray here and we'll let you go. Lord, thank you for our time around the Word of God today. Thank you for these men. Thank you for your, your faithfulness to each one of them, the work that you're doing in transforming them. And we're grateful for the honor and privilege we have to share the Word of God together. Be with each one of them. Uh, we look forward to gathering in a, a place where we can physically, albeit uh, with masks on and distancing, but nonetheless be together. We look forward to that. We ask your blessing on each one. Lord, help us as we process and think about the tremendous work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which is what Jesus is doing in these passages. How privileged we are that you have given us the resources and the power and the enablement to live a life that's honoring to you. You're transforming us into the image of your son, the Bible tells us. And the Holy Spirit is the key to that transformational process. Be with these men. May they continue to grow in their faith, be men of strong, strong faith, men of God who represent you well. We ask you to enable us to do that. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen. See you next week. Have a good week. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.